Father, in the midst of the Christmas season and all that's going on around us, uh, help us to remember you first. In Jesus' name, amen. Related to timing on Sunday mornings, uh, we had a meeting yesterday talking about scheduling, and uh, we said sometimes people who teach need to aim for more time, and others of us who teach, we need to shed time. We need to bring that down a little bit. So in light of that, I'm actually working at, good to see you, Steve, at uh, trimming down my teaching time, and this might be a little rushed this morning. It might sound a little rushed. There's a lot of ground I'm covering, and I apologize for that on one hand. Uh, on the other, the, the subject this morning is joy, and though we'll rush through a lot of information, if you go away and you don't remember anything else, the one thing that I would exhort you to remember this morning is this, that joy is like a Christmas present that Jesus came to the earth and died and rose from the grave to give you, and that probably for most of us it's a present that's stuck under the tree that's never been broached, never been opened, that joy sits like an unopened present underneath the Christmas tree. And so my admonition to you from this morning's teaching is that this Christmas season, you'll pick up that package called joy and you'll unwrap it. And I think you'll see why in the material we cover, why this is so, so vitally important. About a month ago, we talked about shedding saying no to or rejecting the soul-deadening sin that we call anxiety or worry. And this is a good place to start a rich spiritual life. And then a couple weeks ago, we talked about laughing with God. That is, God makes these improbable promises to His people, and He laughs at us sometimes, but He wants us to laugh with Him at the benevolent ways He wants to bless our life. We should be laughing with God this morning we want to participate with God in joy. We want to make joy, the joy of the Lord, our own. Um, joy, if you read Greek, the New Testament uses three different terms uh, that we translate all of them into joy, kind of like love. You know, three primary Greek words for love, we all say love. They all translate the same. That's the same with joy. Various words in Greek for joy, all of which we translate joy, basically meaning delight, pleasure, or elation. Um, the Oxford English Dictionary says this, it's a vivid emotion of pleasure arising from a sense of well-being or satisfaction. Joy is a feeling or state of being highly pleased or delighted. It's exultation of spirit, gladness, and delight. Joy is an emotion for sure. We experience joy emotionally, but it's, it's a lot more than just an emotion. Joy is like a fountain of life. Describing joy is a little difficult. Uh, try it yourself and see what I mean. We'll read several descriptions, but what does joy look like? What does it feel like? Joy on one hand is gentle, yet on the other hand it's as strong as steel, which we'll look at in just a little bit. And joy is related to some degree to happiness, but it's happiness and contentment multiplied. It's more than happiness. A Christian author named Sherwood Wirt, who's worked with uh, Billy Graham for many years, wrote a book called Jesus, the Man of Joy. And this is what he says about joy. Joy is the enjoyment of God and the good things that come from the hand of God. If our new freedom in Christ is a piece of angel food cake, joy is the frosting. Joy is an attribute of God Himself. It brings with it pleasure, 
gladness and delight. Joy is merriment without frivolity, hilarity without raucousness, and mirth without cruelty. Joy is sportive without being rakish. It's festive without being cheap. Joy radiates animation, sparkle, and buoyancy. It is more than fun, yet it has fun. It expresses itself in laughter and elation, yet it draws from a deep spring that keeps flowing long after the laughter has died and the tears have come. Even while it joins those who mourn, it remains cheerful in a world that has gone gray with grief and worry. That's a pretty good description of joy, especially in our world, no matter how much material prosperity we have, the truth is we live spiritually and emotionally in a world gone gray with grief and worry. It is important to remember joy is not the same as happiness. You know, if you're an American, you have this inalienable right to the pursuit of happiness. But, you know, happiness requires circumstances to be favorable. If you think when you're happy, it's because things are going well. We don't say we're happy when we're in pain. We don't say we're happy when when our grades aren't what we thought they would or we lose our job or whatever. Happiness depends on circumstances. That is not true of joy. Joy is entirely different, entirely different foundation. It is not based on circumstances at all. There's an example of this in the Old Testament in Nehemiah's day. If you remember, the Jews get to leave Babylon where they've been held captives for 70 years and they get to go back to their own land. This was a good thing. Part of what happened, though, was they found the book of the law. Remember, the Jews are in a covenant with God and this covenant is, is, uh, is overseen by this law, the first five books of the law of Moses. So Nehemiah says, good idea, let's read the law. We're back in the land, we're back with God, the temple's being rebuilt, this is a good thing, and so they read the law. The trouble is, the people haven't lived under the law. So they hear the law and the requirements, and you know what their first response is? They're overwhelmed, they're depressed, and they're sad. Because you can imagine, somebody's just lowered the boom and say, welcome home, and by the way, I've got a hundred things for you to do starting tomorrow. So they feel overwhelmed. They're, They're not exalting, they're not full of joy, they're depressed, They're overwhelmed and they're sad. So Nehemiah says this. He says, listen, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared. In other words, celebrate. This is a cause to celebrate our presence here and gaining basically knowledge again of our covenant with God is not a downside. It's an upside, so celebrate. This day is holy to our Lord. Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you sing a song with that phrase, this is where it comes from, Nehemiah 8. The joy of the Lord is your strength. They're overwhelmed by the requirements of the law. They're depressed and anxious. And Nehemiah says, don't worry about that because it's God's joy that will be the strength in you to accomplish God's purposes. God's joy will be strength in you to accomplish God's purposes. And that's the truth. Joy is based on God. It's not based on circumstances. If joy was based on circumstance, James could not write in James 1, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Couldn't write that. Because trials are something we don't like. They're difficult times. They're fiery ordeals. But James says count it all joy because joy in the trials doesn't depend on happy feelings. Joy depends on God's presence with you in a difficult circumstance. And therefore, even in difficulty, and maybe we could say preeminently in difficulty, 
You can be joyful because you have God. Uh, Paul says this in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now, this would be a good statement on its own. But remember who's writing this and where. Paul's writing this from prison. He's in chains. He's in prison. He's not free to come and go. He's not feasting. And Paul still says in the place of imprisonment, you should be rejoicing always because it doesn't depend on your circumstance. This was the guy who was singing at midnight in a prison cell with his friend. Same thing. The joy wasn't dependent on his circumstances. He had Christ. He had enough to be joyful in whatever trials came his way. Elizabeth Brown uh, knows something about joy. She and her husband wrote a book several years ago called The Joy Choice. And before I read this brief excerpt, let me tell you, they were parents of a little girl who was born with diabetes. And so some in our presence know about this uh, childhood diabetes. It was a big thing, and, and they actually managed it pretty well. And she seemed to thrive and do pretty well. But she got sick quite suddenly before her seventh birthday and died. And this, as you can imagine, as uh, young parents with your child, this was a terrible, terrible blow. So with that as a backdrop, as far as the perspective of the person writing this, this is what Elizabeth Brown says about joy. To live with joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Emotion-driven happiness wants life to be perfect and then more perfect. This self-centered focus is never satisfied. It constantly cries out, I want more, I need more, I deserve more. In contrast, joy can find peace within all circumstances. Joy allows our spirits to soar above the hurts of the past or the pain in the present. Joy grants us new eyes to see our difficulties as points of growth in life. Sounds like James 1. Joy teaches us that even mountainous problems don't have to keep us down. She continues, descriptively, joy is broader and deeper than positive thinking. Joy is more than willing life to be happy. You cannot will yourself to feel happy when your child dies, your business fails, your marriage falls apart, your health is deteriorating, or your children have major problems. Positive thinking can make one feel happy, but the more life hits, the more difficult it is to sustain happy feelings. Joy is the opposite of self-controlling the circumstances and self-making happiness. Joy is dependence on God regardless of the circumstances. It comes by letting go of the controls and trusting God with your life. Now this is a person who's seen both sides of circumstances, good and bad, and she looks back over joy and says, joy is entirely unrelated a circumstance. In the loss of a child, even, you can experience God's joy. One of the reasons I bring this up, Christmas is a particularly opportune time to do this, as you'll see in a minute, because joy is part of the story of the incarnation. But this is the flip side. You know, if you were here a month ago and we talked about anxiety, uh, most of us fool ourselves in this realm when we say anxiety is just, it's this minor fault, and, and we don't see it as a sin that kills our soul. So you look at it from a different perspective and you say, this thing, anxiety, this thing, worry, it's, it's a big deal. And we need to get rid of it. And if we get rid of it, we experience this new phase of life. We, we experience life on this entirely different level. Well, I'm submitting the same thing this morning about joy. 
I, I'm absolutely convinced that basically Christ has provided for us a life kind of at the 10th floor level, if you will, the penthouse level, and we're living in the basement, most of us, where there's no windows. Most Christians are living these, these squashed, existing, if you will, in these squashed lives day after day, experiencing none of the overflowing life and joy that Christ means us to. I think it's one of the reasons why the church is so, frankly, impotent. Because Christians look like the larger world around them. We look like the larger world around us. And if Nehemiah 8 is true, the joy of the Lord is our strength, do you think there might be a connection between a lack of joy and a lack of strength and vitality for accomplishing God's will in the larger world around us? Or for our own experience of life on this earth? Most of us are living at the spiritual poverty level. And one of the key reasons I'm suggesting this morning is because we don't embrace joy and the strength that joy brings with it. God means us to. I'm going to run through a lot of scriptures. If you want to try and hang, feel free. If not, just listen. But starting with the joy of the incarnation. Joy is all over the Christmas story. In Luke 1, even before Jesus is on the scene, when the angel appears to Zacharias in the temple and tells him about the forerunner of the Messiah, he says that the birth of John the Baptist to old Zacharias and old Elizabeth would bring joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, at John the Baptist's birth. Later it says of Elizabeth and her birth, her neighbors were rejoicing with her. Just with the coming of John the Baptist, joy comes with the forerunner of Jesus. And then I love Luke 1, starting at verse 41. I, I won't read much of this, but you know the story. Mary goes down to visit cousin Elizabeth. Now, they're both pregnant, but Elizabeth is pregnant about six months further along than Mary. And when Mary comes into the room with Liz, what happens? She says, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Now, I love this picture. This sounds slightly pro-life-ish to me, that a baby in the womb is leaping for joy because of a baby in the womb across the room, that even in the womb you see John the Baptist leaping for joy because Christ is near. I love this. Mary says in that same context in her prayer called the Magnificat, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She looks at what God is doing, the joy based on God, not circumstances, based on what God is doing, and she says, my spirit rejoices in God. In Luke 2, the most famous of the Christmas passages, if for no other reason than Charlie Brown's Christmas, when those angels appear to the shepherds on the hills, you know, almost always when angels appear, people's response is fear, and the angels say, hey, don't be afraid, I'm bringing you good news of great joy, which will be for all people, because for you, this day in the city of David, there's been born a Savior, Christ the Lord. Everything related to the incarnation is tied to joy. And in Matthew 2, related to the wise men coming from the east, John read about last week. Remember, they came to Jerusalem and they've been following a star. We don't know why, but it's as if the stars temporarily disappeared. Where do we go? Where do we find him? And they're directed down to Bethlehem. And it says, when they saw the star again, 
They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They know under that star lies the king that they've been searching for. Joy follows every element of the incarnation. Jesus coming to the earth brings joy. Now, this is true post-resurrection also. That is, you see joy attendant with Jesus after his suffering and death and resurrection as well. When the disciples are for fear, locking themselves in this upper room after Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus comes and appears to them and he says, Peace be with you. He said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. His presence with them brought joy. In Acts 8, there's a story of a conversion where someone's been introduced to Christ. This is the Ethiopian eunuch. And this guy's been in Jerusalem around the time of all these events, but he's left not knowing about them. And he's headed down in his chariot. He's reading Isaiah 53. God's description of Jesus as the suffering servant and Philip is miraculously transported to him. And starting there at Isaiah 53, he explains the gospel, who Jesus was, that he was this person he's been reading about, explains the gospel the eunuch believes and is baptized. And it says, he went on his way rejoicing. He's met Christ in his initial response. He gives feet to his faith. He's baptized. But then the response he's characterized by is, He went on his way rejoicing. He's met Christ. He's filled with joy. Now, this is a verse that I am always challenged by, and I hope you are too. 1 Peter 1, verse 8, says to Christians this, Though you haven't seen him, that is Christ, you love him. And though you don't see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, frankly... When I read that verse, I don't say that's my experience routinely. And I'll bet you don't either. But Peter, writing to Christians, simply those like you and I who've trusted Christ, who know and love Christ, he says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter understands that this should be the norm for Christians. Christians should know this overflowing, inexpressible, deep-seated joy That should be the norm for you and I in this life because of who we know, because of Christ's presence with us. This is a challenge. Is that your experience? I I confess most often that's not my experience. This is a problem. This is supposed to be our experience. And can you imagine a world uh, seeing Christians whose life was characterized by this kind of joy. God gets a, a bum rap for being a killjoy. And, and Christians, though, sometimes are deservedly are accused of being killjoy. Sometimes deservedly. This should never be true of Christians. There are things we don't do or participate in because they're immoral. That's not the same thing. But Christians are supposed to be marked by joy. Never excuse or explain away your dour persona or your negative outlook on life, or whatever else, on being a Christian, because that just ain't so. That's not the way it is. To know Christ is to know joy. Joy, this, this is kind of the bottom line on joy, too. <clears throat> joy is an aspect of the nature of God himself. And, and this is the second thing. If you walk away, if you, you don't remember anything else, get the package called joy and unwrap it this Christmas. And the second thing is, remember this, 
The reason joy is so important is because it's part of the nature of God. Joy is part of the nature of God. In Luke 10, when Jesus is a man walking the earth and he's contemplating what God is doing, basically rejecting the proud and embracing the humble, it says he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, a man on earth, is rejoicing in what God's doing on the, on the earth as well. Jesus, as a man on earth, is rejoicing, filled with joy. There's a reason for this. In Galatians 5, 22, Paul's talking about the Christian spiritual life versus a carnal life, and he describes the two. When he describes the spiritual, he says the fruit of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit who's in you. If you're a Christian, you've trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit's in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. There's nine fruits, there's six more after this, but this is what I want you to understand. Joy is no less a part of the character of God than is love. Christians are fond of quoting 1 John saying God is love, that's great, but you know what else? God is joy. God is in himself joy. He's love and he's joy and he's peace. We'll talk about peace on another Sunday. God is innately, inherently, in who He is, in what He is, He is joy. So to know God and to have His Spirit, His life in you by the Holy Spirit, joy should be the natural outcome. Because the work of the Holy Spirit in Christians today is to reproduce the life of Christ in us. The Holy Spirit is in us to make us look more and more and more like Christ Himself. The nature of God Himself, the nature of Christ, is joy. So when you think God is love, that's fine, but don't stop there. God is joy also. So to know God is to know the source of all joy. And to be a Christian with the Holy Spirit inside you is to have the source of all joy within you. We have no excuse for not knowing joy, for not being filled with joy, because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And the Holy Spirit brings with him is joy. Joy is a vital aspect of God's nature and character. Joy motivated Christ, by the way, too. You know, when he's anticipating the cross, Hebrews 2, uh, 12, 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He rejoiced in the way God was working in the world in Luke 10. In Hebrews 12, it says joy was one of those motives that adjusted his perspective when he's thinking about the suffering that he was going to face on the cross. It was for joy that he endured. You and I, we'll go through trials. There's always joy, though. There's joy in the trials, and there's joy following the trials. Jesus, it says, for joy before him. Joy was a motivator for enduring the suffering on the cross. And if there's one verse that doesn't blow your mind or blow your image of God as not joyful, a Zephaniah 3.17, I just think, is one you could commit to memory. This is speaking of God and Israel in a day that has not yet happened. But he says this, The Lord your God is in your midst. He's a victorious warrior. That is, He's delivered you from all your enemies. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. And he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now, just we, we studied Zephaniah earlier this year going through the Minor Prophets. But just think about this for a minute. If you've ever seen a father who's, who's just become a father, Kent, more than once, a few of us. But 
you think of the joy of a father whose wife has just delivered a baby, this overflowing, exultant joy, this is exactly what Zephaniah is talking about. Or if you think about the response uh, maybe some in this room have when their favorite team wins or wins the playoff, you know, KU or the Chiefs or whatever, and there's this shouting joy, that's exactly the same thing here. But the picture here is of God shouting with joy over his people. God is filled with joy, and when he looks at you and I, his people, he rejoices over us with shouting. It's not demure, it's not laid back, it's not respectable, if you will. It's overflowing, it's exuberant joy God has towards and over his people. God has marked out the future for both Israel and the church in terms of joy. In Isaiah 35, speaking of a day that's not yet come, but when Jesus rules the earth in Israel as Messiah, Isaiah 35 says, The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. That's a pretty good start, but it goes on and says, The ransomed of the Lord will return, that is, they'll be returned to the land of promise, Israel, and they'll come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy on their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Joyful shouting, everlasting joy, gladness and joy. This is Israel's future in the presence of Jesus, the Messiah on earth, marked out by joy. Christians' eternity is marked out by joy, no less. Listen to Jude 1, verse 24. Jude is kind of a dark little letter. It's like Second Peter. It's a letter about dark times and dark, false teachers in the church. And so most of it's about judgment. But in this little kind of dark letter about dark times, Jude says this, "...to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless..." That's justification. This is a good thing. Got to have that. But not just blameless, with great joy. Your eternity, marked out, standing in the presence of Christ, is marked out by joy. When you're in Christ's presence, it's going to be joyful. That's your future. That's your eternity. It's not a dull time on a cloud with a harp. It's overflowing, exuberant joy. That's your future as a Christian. Jesus will for you too. If you're just thinking about, I want to be an obedient Christian, Jesus will for you is joy. You know, if you think, I want my life to be characterized by obedience to Christ, and that's part of the mission statement of this church. I hope if you're a regular at this church, you embrace the mission statement, which says we want to obey Christ in all things. And as part of obeying Christ, embracing joy is part of that obedience. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples the night before he's crucified. He's giving them his last words, his last statements before he's gone. He said this in John 15, 11, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be, may be made full. These last things Jesus is telling them, he says, the reason I'm telling you these things is so that my joy will be in you and so that your joy will be full. It's as if Jesus says, I've got a pitcher full of joy and I'm going to fill your little pitcher up with it. I'm going to take my joy and make it yours. In John 16, 22, speaking of his separation because of the cross, he says, you're going to be grieved, but your heart will rejoice, post-resurrection, 
and no one will take your joy away from you. You're going to have a period of grief, and we all do over various things, but you're going to get a joy that no one can remove. And then in John 16, 24, Jesus says, Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive so that your joy may be made full. One of the primary reasons for us to pray is so that we can enter into what God's doing so that we may experience more joy. Sometimes we think we're moving the hand of God in prayer. I don't agree with that perspective. I think we're entering into what God wants to do anyway. And by our entering in, we share God's joy in what he's doing, just as Jesus did in Luke 10. Jesus says, I want you to pray in my name because when you do, your joy is going to be filled up. And finally, Romans 14, 17, Paul says uh, there's been haranguing, there's been arguments about what do we eat, what do we not eat in the early church in the Mediterranean world. This was an issue, idol temples, etc. What day do we celebrate? What days do we not celebrate? Are we Jewish? Are we pagan? Are we what? What What do we do? In the midst of all that, Paul says this, the kingdom of God, it's not about what you eat and it's not about what you drink. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul says when you're thinking about God's kingdom, you're a Christian in a new kingdom, in a new family, in the, in the order of God on the earth. It's not about what you're eating and drinking. It's not about the days in the calendar. It's about joy in the Holy Spirit. That's God's plan for the earth. It's that those who know Him have joy. This Christmas, whatever else you do, as you think about the incarnation and Jesus coming into the earth, embrace joy. Pick up that package under the tree marked joy, unwrap it, and enjoy it. Enjoy joy. And let me, let me uh, encourage you with three ways you can do that. The first is this. Anything that's worthwhile requires time. If you're not experiencing much joy in your life, let me suggest it's probably because you're devoting yourself to lesser things. They might even be good things, or they may not be. But in any event, they're probably less good, less excellent than joy. So this Christmas season, and guys, as you know, all times are busy and, and holiday times, they're just busier. So this Christmas season, carve out some time to invest in joy. And that could be as simple as praying, John 16. Enter into what God's doing in prayer and experiences joy in prayer. This could mean sitting down, if you're a family, sitting down and reading the Christmas stories. This could be by yourself in the morning, reading Luke 2 or listening to Charlie Brown Christmas. Still one of my favorite Christmas shows. Little Linus on the stage, quoting Luke 2. It doesn't get much better than that. But take time to invest in something this Christmas season that, that refocuses your eyes on joy, that shuts out all the busy things that are going on and all the work that there is to accomplish and refocus on joy. Watch It's a Wonderful Life, or there's all kinds of options, but refocus on joy. Take time to do that. It's valuable. It's worth having. It requires time. Also along this line, Jesus said in John 10 that he came that we might have life and might have it abundantly. But in contrast to the good shepherd who comes to give us this overflowing joyful life, there's an enemy of your soul, a real, a real character called the devil, and he's not omnipresent, but he's got lots of help. And then on top of that, we've also got our own sinful carnal natures that tend towards the gutter and the pit also. And so this Christmas season, as you're tempted to angst and worry and strife and anger and whatever, you know, when the bird doesn't get cooked right or the, the relatives you don't like come over or whatever, you're going to be tempted 
to lose perspective and lose joy. And just let me encourage you, take a stick and poke the devil in the eye, so to speak, or reject your baser, carnal nature's temptation to negativity and bitterness and, and whatever. Or if you're alone and you're tempted to despair or loneliness or life's not what you want, etc., 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 get over it and choose joy instead. You will be tempted. So just figure going in, I'm going to reject those temptations. I'm going to poke the devil in the eye and I'm going to choose joy instead. I'm not going to leave that package underneath the Christmas tree. The last thing is this. You know, when you and I leave each other, uh, you always leave a part of yourself behind. Did you know that? Did you think about that? Uh, One of my daughters and I had a conversation about this just this week. What do you leave behind when you interact with other people? I'm quite serious about this. What what did you leave behind? Let me encourage you this Christmas to embrace joy and then leave some joy with those you've interacted with. Be the Bob Cratchit to the Scrooges in life around you. You make it your purpose this Christmas season not just to give away some gifts that that are plastic wrapped or whatever and shiny and bows and not just to feed somebody a good meal or entertain yourself with whatever's going on. Make it your determination to personally experience joy and give some of those packages of joy away to the people you're interacting with so that when they leave you, they didn't just have a nice conversation and their stomachs aren't just a little fuller and their, their, belt, you know, their belt's a little tighter because they were with you on Christmas. But when they go away, let them go away with joy because they spent time in your presence. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just struck again and again that you provided a rich bounty of life for all of us Lord, whether we are Bill Gates and the wealthiest people in the world, Lord, or whether we are paupers in India, for any and all of us who call on your name, you've set a feast before us and the table is laden with things like love and joy and peace. And God, I pray that you would make it our determination to reject this lesser, banal existence like the gray world around us, Lord, and that you would help us embrace life by embracing more of you and embracing joy this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.